folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. Each January for the past few years or so, I've been teaching an extended adult education series at my local church. And I was getting ready to put some notes together for, uh, for the 2020 instance of that series. And I came across some notes that uh, dated from five years ago, from 2015. And I recalled that back in 2015, I, as, uh, along with a few other folks at the church and the pastor, got together to uh, put on a series, a four-week series, on the Belhar Confession. So back in September 2015, the Presbyterian Church was in the process of adopting the Belhar Confession within its Book of Confessions. I'll say a little more about that later. And uh, we wanted to take the opportunity and educate the congregation on that confession. So we planned a four-part series. We broke it up. I was going to take the first week on the history and theological significance of the Belhar Confession. And thinking back, I remembered that I did what I normally do, and I ended up over-preparing, and I had to race through uh, quite a bit of my notes. I did not feel as though I got to do it all justice, unfortunately, uh, but I, I know that people appreciated it. And uh, I have absolutely no plans whatsoever to do anything else with this material, so I figured that I would sit down and talk through it and record it uh, so that maybe one or two of you might find it interesting and edifying. So uh, I'll begin on the Belhar Confession, its history and significance, uh, talking about its history first. And uh, to set the stage, I want to talk a little bit about the social background of the Confession, which is, of course, South African apartheid. And I'm sure uh, some of you probably know a lot more about South African apartheid than I do, but I wanted to just sketch the broad contours uh, as uh, a way of getting started here. Uh, so the Europeans came to South Africa during the Age of Exploration, and it was primarily under Dutch influence until the British came, gained control uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. And after that, it remained in the British Empire until that empire dissolved in the 20th century. Of course, the British Empire moved to suppress slavery in the early 19th century, uh, earlier than the United States. But already by that time, a very hierarchical society was in place in South Africa with various tribal and mixed race identities uh, and there were social divisions between the different tribal identities, the mixed race identities, and then the Europeans uh, in that context already in the early 19th century. So those divisions uh, continued to be reified and solidified through the following years. Now, the presence of Christianity in South Africa was originally divided between congregations for the European colonists and then mission churches for the native populations. And then those mission churches were divided along all those tribal lines I mentioned earlier, class lines as well, race lines, uh, all of these different subdivisions within the churches there in South Africa. And all of this, of course, led to a de facto segregation. You ended up having uh, very homogenous congregations of people. Um, of course, this is still a problem uh, today in the United States, uh, for instance, the homogenization of Christianity. Uh, 
But you've got this de facto church segregation up and running. Already in the early 19th century, there were some rural churches who asked uh, their you know, church authorities for separate facilities and separate services for uh, different groups of people along these tribal class and race lines. Now, initially, this was denied very correctly. But by the 1850s, different churches were being set up for different folks along these lines, and especially for colored people. And of course, in the South African context, uh, the term colored refers to people of mixed race heritage. So you're getting separate churches set up for colored people, and you have colored children banned from public schools in the 1860s. So uh, the seeds were in place already by the early 19th century. By mid-century, they were beginning to bear very clear structural social fruit. So the churches uh, increasingly found theological reasons at first to allow and then to support these increasingly segregationist policies. And so uh, you get the standard arguments uh, that one finds in this period across the globe about um, these sorts of arrangements as a means for the development of underdeveloped people groups, quote-unquote. Um, and also in the South African context, you get uh, Kuyperian sphere sovereignty theology. So this is a Dutch Reformed um, theological idea coming from Abraham Kuyper. And it's sort of like a Luther two kingdoms doctrine, but on steroids and with a bunch more subdivisions. So the basic idea is that God intends society to have all these different spheres or areas, and there are different institutions um, delegated for the different areas, and those institutions have quote-unquote sovereignty in those areas. And the important thing is that you don't have one institution from one area impinging on another institution from another area. So this would be how you could structure church-state relations. It could be um, church, school, uh, and you know, family is another unit. And so the idea is in this Kuyperian setup that you have these different spheres that are uh, relatively autonomous and they don't need to interact with one another. Well, as soon as you lay a racial um, lens over that, you start getting the idea that each racial group, each tribal group, each class group, whatever kinds of groups you're working with, uh, should be left alone to its own devices with relative autonomy within a hierarchy of sovereignty. So that's a particularly uh, Dutch reformed idea that was influential in South Africa as a justification or rationalization for some of these policies. Matters accelerated with political recalibration after World War II, and you get a nationalist party in the ascendancy in South Africa. And this led to very strict racial segregation. <clears throat> so, for instance, it's at this point that you get interracial marriage and even interracial, interracial sexual relations banned. You get uh, all public facilities segregated. Uh, people of color uh, had to carry identification papers. And in 1915, every person in South Africa received an official race classification. Uh, they, colored people cannot travel to or travel uh, around the country or work without those papers. And of course, this kind of documentation then uh, becomes a means of controlling access uh, to different parts of the country and different people groups. And then in addition, people of different tribal or ethnic backgrounds had to live in particular places, whether within a city or within the country generally. 
and this made it easier to limit their political voice and deny them participation in the national government. It also, by keeping them separated in these subgroups, makes it harder for them to unite in a larger movement against the very minority uh, European descent uh, ruling uh, population. So uh, in this process, you get three and a half million people about removed from their homes and relocated on quote-unquote reservations or quote-unquote homelands uh, within South Africa, which is uh, these designations by tribal or ethnic identity. And as a result of all of this movement, you end up with 80% of the country controlled and held by a very minority white population. Uh, so you've, you've got everybody else sequestered off on these quote-unquote homelands where you can limit their representation, uh, limit their interaction so they can't unite against you, and make sure that you, uh, as the uh, European uh, powers, or descendants of the European powers, you hold all the political cards. Now, this apartheid state, apartheid meaning separation, this fell apart in the last decades of the 20th century, and the falling apart was a complex process, just like the creation of the situation was a complex process, but you get a new constitution and the beginning of a non-white coalition government in 1994, and that marks the official end of apartheid in South Africa. Nelson Mandela was elected as the first black head of state for South Africa, South Africa and he was also the first president elected by a representative vote, uh, because previously, again, you had the folks sequestered in these homelands and uh, their representation uh, restricted. So that's some of the social background to South African apartheid. So if that's some of the history of the Belhar Confession, then what about the significance of the Belhar Confession? And to talk about its significance, we have to understand the role of confessions in the Reformed tradition. So what are they? What are confessions in the Reformed tradition? Uh, the short answer is that they are statements of faith. The slightly longer answer, and you know, more interesting and helpful, is that they are descriptions of what a particular church believes and how that fits into the larger Christian tradition. So what the confessions in the Reformed tradition are trying to do is define both proper belief and practice uh, so that makes them very practical in orientation. So this is the theology that's supposed to provide a framework or an orientation for your life as a member of this particular church community. So that's what confessions are in the Reformed tradition. When were they written? When were confessions written? Uh, they were written when they had to be. Uh, which is another perhaps unhelpful short answer, but uh, to unpack it a little bit, these confessions are written when it's necessary for a church to state its faith or risk unfaithfulness to the gospel. And in the Reformed tradition, we refer to this as a status confessionis, a state of confession, when uh, it becomes necessary to make these statements. So a few examples of when this has occurred. Reformational confessions, for instance, I'm thinking about things like the Scots Confession, uh, the Heidelberg, um, the Westminster getting a bit later on, the Second Helvetic. Uh, Reformational confessions addressed the nature of the gospel and the nature of the church. Those were the issues that were at stake, whether you're talking about justification by faith or the idea that the local church has to be gathered around word and sacrament. Those were the questions that required confessing or the issues that required confessing in the Reformational period. 
now, the Barman Declaration uh, from Germany in the 1930s was a very different situation. Uh, there, uh, they confessed that Jesus is the, quote, one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and death, end quote. And this was important because they felt they needed to distinguish themselves from the German Christians who accommodated Christianity to serve the Nazi state. And uh, the, barman, or the barman, I believe, can be very instructive for us still today in the United States, given the extensive identification between uh, Christianity and uh, conservative reactionary politics in the United States. Uh, another example, the Confession of 67 from the Presbyterian Church USA uh, had to deal with doctrinal disputes in the North American church, so there was this theological side to it. Uh, they were wrestling with the leftovers or the holdovers from the modernist fundamental con fundamentalist controversy on biblical interpretation, the dispensationalism uh, that ran rampant through the first half of the 20th century, middle of the 20th century, and so on. So there were theological issues that had to be addressed, but there were also some social sociopolitical uh, aspects of this confession coming as it did in the midst of the Cold War and uh, after the Civil Rights Movement or at the tail end of the Civil Rights Movement. So the Confession of 67 kind of straddles both the theological and the sociopolitical in its confession. So in each of those cases, uh, the church felt as though it was in a situation where if it did not cl make clear what it thought about certain pressing issues, then it would be unfaithful to the gospel. So that's when confessions happen in the Reformed tradition. Now, uh, what is the authority of confessions in the Reformed tradition? Well, again, the short answer is that they are subordinate standards. And if we unpack that again, uh, we can get a little more detail. Uh, but many of these confessions explicitly acknowledge their situation as subordinate standards. And the thing to which they are subordinate is scripture. So scripture serves as the higher norm, and the confessions are there to help you read scripture aright. So this is what the Westminster says on the subject, quote, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures, end quote. Uh, and I don't have the exact language written down, but the preface for the Scots Confession uh, says, and this is uh, something of a close paraphrase, um, if anybody can demonstrate through Scripture where something in this confession is wrong and they bring it to our attention, we'll either answer them uh, why we're right and they're wrong, or we'll change the confession. So this idea that the confessions are always subject to the authority of Scripture and therefore uh, revisable based on the authority of Scripture. So Scripture is the highest standard and the confessions are subordinate standards. And uh, Karl Barth calls this the Scripture principle in Reformed theology, the idea that Scripture is the uh, supreme norm and these confessional standards are subordinate standards. Uh, Durkee Smits uh, is a South African Reformed theologian, and he was one of Belhar's authors. And he talks about the Reformed tradition being held together not by institutions or universal confessions. So you don't need a single organizational identity. You don't need a single confession for all Reformed churches. That's not what holds it together. Instead, the Reformed tradition is held together as a community through time and space, 
gathered around Scripture. And the reason why you have so many different Reformed confessions is that you have lots of different people in lots of different times and places gathered around Scripture in that tradition. And that answers the next question. Why do we have a whole book of confessions in the Presbyterian Church USA and in the Reformed tradition in general? Since they are subordinate to Scripture, and our tradition is one of gathering around Scripture, and since these confessions are written at decisive moments in the church's life as a description of that church's faith, it's impossible to have only one universal confession. They have to be contextual. Each confession in the Reformed tradition is a contextual document speaking of uh, to a particular time and place and particular issues in that time and place. They are responsive to the context in which a church is called to preach the gospel. Because again, it's all about whether or not you can stay faithful to the gospel without clarifying what you as a church believe in this situation. And this contextuality is why the theological task is never done. The church has to discern how to proclaim the gospel in each new context. So theology is an ongoing contextual process where you're trying to connect the dots between the message of the gospel and the context. So the context is also going to shape how you understand the gospel, and the gospel is going to shape how you respond to the context. And it's this dialectical movement that demands that theology begin ever again at the beginning, as Karl Barth famously said. So contextuality means that theology's task is never done, but contextuality also means that everyone is a theologian because it's the task of each member of the church to join in this contextual proclamation of the gospel. So it's the church as a whole who confesses, not just particular theologians. The only question, uh, questions are, will the church be faithful in its contexts? And will the members of the church be good or bad theologians? And here, being good or bad is determined by how faithful you are, both to the gospel and to your context. So this really places a great deal of demands on us as Christians to use every tool at our disposal to understand what's going on in the context and what needs to be addressed, where we need to proclaim the gospel and how, and also every means at our disposal to understand what the gospel might be saying to us today. Nobody ever said being a Christian would be easy, and anybody who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. So, why did the Presbyterian Church USA decide to add the Belhar Confessions to its book of confessions? In my reading, uh, the first reason is because of relationships. The Reformed Church of America added the Belhar Confession as an official statement of faith back in 2010. And that's significant because the Presbyterian Church USA and the Reformed Church of America are part of the formula of agreement. Uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America is part of this as well, as, as are uh, the UCC. So these four churches have this formula of agreement, which basically means they are in full communion, to such an extent that if you are ordained in one, you are eligible to apply for calls in any of them. Uh, so we share ministry and share ordination within this formula of agreement. So since the RCA, uh, uh, the other confessionally reformed group in this formula of agreement, since they adopted the Belhar Confession, the PCUSA adopting it is an act of solidarity within that, confession, that formula of agreement. Then also, uh, another relational reason 
is the Uniting Reformed Church in South Africa uh, and its relationship to the PCUSA. But first, I want you to understand uh, where this Uniting Reformed Church in South Africa came from. It came from a merger that happened in 1994 when apartheid ended. And on one side of this merger was the Reformed Church in Africa, the Dutch Reformed Church in Africa. And that uh, church's membership was black, according to South African designations. And then the other part was the Dutch Reformed Mission Church, and they were colored, according to the South African apartheid designations. Now, the Dutch Reformed Mission Church, that's the church who produced the Belhar Confession. It was written in 1984 and then adopted in 1986. And interestingly, it was originally written in Afrikaans. Uh, so these two churches got together, the Dutch Reformed Colored Church and the Dutch Reformed Black Church get together in 1994 when apartheid ends and become the Uniting Reformed Church in South Africa. Now the Uniting Reformed Church in Southern Africa and the Presbyterian Church USA are both members of the World Communion of Reformed Churches. And if you're not familiar with the World Communion of Reformed Churches, it is the largest Reformed Communion uh, in the world. And these stats are probably a little bit out of date, but it's the third largest communion of Christian churches in the world. Uh, it's got about 230 churches in about 110 countries, and there are around 80 million members. So it's kind of a big deal. And uh, since both of these churches are members of uh, that greater communion, the PCUSA adopting the Belhar Confession as part of its Book of Confessions uh, is an act of solidarity in relationship with them. So there are these uh, relational reasons for the PCUSA to adopt the Belhar Confession. Uh, but also there's a contextual reason uh, on the side of the PCUSA as well. Although the PCUSA did not officially declare that it's in a status confessionis, uh, the racial situation in American society clearly calls for and continue, called for and continues to call for a response. And the Presbyterian Church USA understood that it needed to stand with those who promote unity because otherwise, by default, you stand with the status quo. Uh, there's that quote uh, that gets circulated under a variety of different names. Who knows who originally said it? I'm not sure. But something to the effect of neutrality in a situation of injustice is to side with the oppressor. And the Presbyterian Church USA did not want to do that. So adopting the Belhar Confession sent a clear message uh, of where the church stood on uh, racial questions and the importance of racial unity in our society. So uh, the original proposal to add the Belhar Confession to the PCUSA Book of Confessions occurred at the General Assembly in 2010, but it missed Presbytery ratification. you got to know a little something about Presbyterian politics here. Uh, but stuff that happens at the General Assembly then has to be ratified in the different presbyteries, and that particular motion uh, missed ratification by eight votes. It takes a two-thirds majority for ratification. They missed it by the votes of eight presbyteries. So at the next General Assembly in 2012, the National Capital Presbytery, which is a very diverse presbytery and very, very engaged in civil rights issues, they submitted a fresh overture at the General, General Assembly proposing once again the adoption of the Belhar Confession. And this is a little odd since it had just uh, failed in its previous overture, uh, but they cited the 
the conviction that this action was prophetic and that uh, the prophetic witness of the Belhar confession was important in that moment, and so they submitted the overture again. So, the GA uh, entertained that overture in 2014, the General Assembly in 2014, and approved that overture to be sent out uh, to the presbyteries for ratification. Now, it received an 86% support vote in the 2014 General Assembly. So it went out to the presbyteries uh, in a very strong position. And it needed 114 presbyteries to ratify it, and it received 144. So uh, the GA then, the General Assembly in 2016, which was the 222nd General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, voted to finalize that inclusion and amend uh, the Book of Confessions so that it, the Belhar Confession became part of the PCUSA Book of Confessions in 2016. So that's about uh, this, a little bit about the process that brought the Belhar into the Book of Confessions. So finally, uh, what about the message of the Belhar Confession. And to begin, just to situate the Belhar a little bit, ancient confessions, the ancient church's confessions, were generally about things like Christology and the Trinity. And reformational confessions were generally about things like salvation and justification and the church. And now 20th century confessions have generally been about the Christian life or sanctification. And the Belhar is one of the clearest examples of this trend. Now, if we look back at the Barman Confession from the context of Nazi Germany, they emphasized Christology as the center for all Christian thinking in response uh, to the danger of other centers, the German Christians taking Hitler, the Fuhrer, as uh, a revelatory moment in God's plan. So in, in rejecting that other possible center for Christian thinking, the Barman emphasized Christ as the only proper center. But it was very careful to remain politically vague. Uh, it did not connect the dots in the clearest of ways and kind of laid the groundwork uh, for that later connecting of the dots or for an implied connecting of the dots. If we fast forward a little bit to the Confession of 67, it deals with a number of social issues, but it also articulates a more robust theology than Barman does. So the Confession of 67 has sections on Jesus, sin, God as creator, the Bible. It has a long section on the church, and so on. Belhar does not spend nearly as much time doing the theological groundwork. It summarizes the Reformed theological tradition briefly and clearly, but then it moves on to spend its time connecting the dots uh, also clearly and concretely. And it has a, uh, a particular structure. It breaks down its sections uh, by uh, the tagline, We Believe, and then a therefore. So it'll say, we believe X, Y, Z, and talk a bit about the theological claims, and then it will say, therefore, here's how the dots are connected. It doesn't literally say that about the dots. It says, therefore, and then it makes particular claims about what needs to happen in their context. So it's a, a slightly different um, form for a confessional statement, but it's because they're emphasizing connecting those dots as the primary goal. They're not trying to do anything new uh, on the theological groundwork side. They're trying to show how that theological groundwork is relevant in concrete ways to their context. So, uh, some of Belhar's themes. 
the first one that I, I would prioritize is uh, that its view of sin is structural rather than merely personal. So the Belhar reminds us that our society's problems are not merely moral. They're not just on the individual level. They take shape as larger impersonal forces. So um, both in the South African context then and today's American context, you have the problem of ghettoization or de facto segregation by people living in different areas. Uh, you have uh, uh, different incarceration rates and how in the United States, uh, brown bodies are incarcerated at a vastly elevated rate than uh, white, quote-unquote, white bodies. Uh, and these elevated statistics cannot be explained simply by individual choices. Uh, really, when facing these kinds of uh, statistics, you have two options. You can give a racist answer and blame these people who are uh, subject to these statistics for making bad choices for being inferior somehow, either they're morally inferior, uh, as demonstrated by making bad choices, or they're culturally inferior, what have you, you're still calling a racial group inferior, that's problematic. You can either do that, or you can recognize that social structures predispose certain behaviors and certain choices. And um, that's where the Belhar is pushing us, to recognize the social structural side that goes into setting up these environments and to predisposing people to behave in certain ways in the environments. Belhar speaks of unity, not just as a matter of empathy between individuals, not just as a question of mere morality. It's not just about having a friend in a minority group. It's about structures. Unity, quote, must become visible, end quote, in communities. It must become visible in communities, end quote, be manifested and be active, end quote, in those communities. So we're talking about how do we build structures of unity and not just leave things on the individual moral level. All of this pushes beyond interpersonal relationships, and it recognizes that we have to address the problematic social structures if we are going to address these issues effectively. So that's the first theme, the structural versus the merely personal account of sin. Another theme is unity in freedom versus enforced separation. So the Belhar says, quote, unity can be established only in freedom and not under constraint, end quote. And I think an important analytic question to raise here is whose freedom is the Belhar talking about? It is not talking about the freedom of the minority elite in South Africa. It is not talking about white freedom. It's talking about the freedom of the marginalized, of the socially oppressed, of uh, the minority populations in the United States, the majority population in South Africa that was uh, segregated and suppressed. Now, why is it not talking about white freedom? Because honestly, white people benefit and have benefited from the exploitation of non-white peoples. Uh, and again, this is not simply a matter of personal minority. It goes back to social structures and problems caused by social structures. So uh, in the United States context, it's not uncommon to hear somebody retort to uh, reply to somebody raising the issue of uh, reparations for slavery. Uh, a white person might reply, well, my ancestors never owned slaved, slaves. 
sure. But uh, your ancestors, uh, if they lived in America at any point, have lived in cities whose wealth have, has been built on the back of slavery and other kinds of uh, disenfranchisement of African Americans. So uh, once we start looking at it as more than just an individual moral question, as again in the earlier theme, and look at it as a structural question, uh, it's a lot easier to get away from the idea that everybody who is white has benefited from, in America, has benefited from slavery in an economic way, implicitly, even if not explicitly. All United States of America prosperity is built on the back of slavery in the first centuries and the continued disenfranchisement of uh, African Americans ever since then. And the important point that Belhar is making is that the privileged people cannot set the terms for unity. Privileged people cannot set the terms for unity. So this requires an act of imagination on the part of those who would be who are from privileged populations and would like to be in solidarity with oppressed populations. You have to somehow imagine your way out of typical patterns of thinking. It's not about anything that privileged people will do to establish unity, to set the terms for unity, to make unity happen. All that privileged folks can do is to make themselves available for unity and to communicate serious intentions about that through concrete acts of solidarity. But unity, insofar as it is going to happen and going to happen uh, properly, needs to be something determined and shaped by uh, those who have been marginalized. So the third uh, theme in the Belhar Confession that I wanted to identify is justice versus legality. The Belhar says that, quote, or that we, quote, must witness against and strive against any form of injustice, even though the authorities and human laws might forbid, end quote, us from doing so. So here you see them making a clear distinction between what is just and what is legal. And in the United States, we have a lot of trouble with this distinction. And I think part of the problem is that we have a whole academic discipline and discourse built up around the terms quote-unquote, criminal justice, um, which is just such a misnomer. And it's, it frames our, it, it connects the idea of justice with um, the bureaucratization of legality and totally obfuscates the fact that it's possible to have laws that are not just. It's possible to have unjust laws and to perpetuate evil, even some of the worst evil, in the name of the rule of law. So, some things that were legal when they happened, but that most people, at least today, recognize as horrible injustices, we have things like apartheid, we have things like the Shoah, we have things like slavery, and the list goes on and on. All of these things were legal at the time, but very, very, very wrong. So, law must be judged according to the justice of God. And Martin Luther King Jr. says something to this effect in his letter from Birmingham Jail uh, that if that more people should read more carefully. So this justice desired by God is revealed in Christ, so that justice desired by God means that Christians should engage in self-sacrificial acts in service to solidarity with the oppressed by standing against systems and structures of oppression. This is, after all, what Jesus did. So justice versus legality. Another theme, peace versus security. Belhar says that, quote, 
God has revealed himself as the one who wishes to bring about justice and true peace, end quote. And I think in the American context, especially after 9-11, I mean, I'm old enough to remember before 9-11, it happened as when I was an adult. I'm teaching students these days who were born after 9-11, who have absolutely no concept of what the world was like. I tell them about stories about going to airports before 9-11, and they can't believe uh, the, the lack of security uh, that was in place then. In the United States, it's easy to miss the distinction between peace and security because we think that peace simply means the absence of war, uh, that we have peace if people are not actively shooting at us. But this leads to thinking of peace merely in terms of security, and security is maintained by the threat of violence and the use of violence. Peace in the Judeo-Christian tradition is very different. It means positive conditions for human flourishing. It's not just the absence of open conflict. It's how do you set up the positive conditions for human beings to flourish and lead robust, meaningful lives. Security equals the threat of legal violence to prevent or redress illegal violence. But peace equals a society where no one would even think to use violence. That's the difference. So we have to shift our vision. And uh, protesters in the United States have reminded us um, that with, with, of this with the slogan, no justice, no peace. Policing or enforcing laws, the question of security, the question of legality, all that uh, can help keep people from shooting at you. Uh, to some limited extent, but only the positive pursuit of justice through addressing structural problems can lead to peace. Security just tries to confine the violence to a population of people that the privileged don't particularly care about. But peace means pursuing a kind of a, a vision for society where all people in that society flourish. So peace versus security. And then the final theme uh, that I think is especially important to bring out in the Belhar Confession has to do with the church's being as mission. And here's another quote from Belhar, quote, God has entrusted the church with the message of reconciliation in and through Jesus Christ. The church is witness both by word and by deed to the new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells, end quote. The purpose of the church is to proclaim and enact a new way of life characterized by peace, justice, and unity. And you can't have any of those things in isolation from the other. You can't have peace without justice and unity. You can't have justice without peace and unity. You can't have unity without peace and justice. All three of them go together or they do not come at all. The church betrays its being, its very reason for existence, and its Lord. It ceases to be the church of Jesus Christ and becomes just one more ultimately self-indulgent special interest group if it does not proclaim and enact the message of Christ's reconciliation. So all of that is a little bit uh, of what I think is important to hear from the Belhar Confession, especially in our current North American context. Uh, thinking ahead, I would love for the Presbyterian Church USA, and of course no, nobody's writing me from 
uh, Louisville to ask uh, my opinion on these things, but if anybody uh, significant is listening, I think it would be wonderful for the PCUSA to consider adopting the ACRA confession. The ACRA confession is similar to the Belhar confession in basic orientation, but it addresses primarily questions of economic injustice. So since we now have the Belhar in place as a church, I think the ACRA is where we need to move next. So I hope that this has been helpful uh, for at least some of you. I've uh, enjoyed getting to remember the Belhar Confession and dwell with it again for a little while, and uh, I'll look forward to speaking to you again sometime in the future. You've been listening to the McCracken Cast. I am and hopefully will remain Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell, but the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts.